David argues for the importance of indeterminacy, insisting that anthropological problems are unashamedly idiosyncratic, interpretive, and personal. So we want to begin by paying tribute to this vision for the discipline and David's vital contribution to it. It's a profound and diffuse inheritance, philosophical, reflective, deeply grounded in ethnographic detail. His writing is quietly elusive, never strident. I've long been a distant admirer, even if I was such, so in awe when I was at SOAS, I used to go up the back stairs to avoid having to meet him in the lift and try and explain what I was trying to think about. <laughs> but chance comments and aperçus have remained with me. Throughout his career, he's played a vital role as a scholar-diplomat, nuancing arguments, finessing debates, seeking compromise between extreme theoretical positions, skills integral to both intellectual debate and academic practice more broadly. So how does our theme connect to David's work, then? And there are many intellectual tributaries he's travelled, as the list on the first page shows us, but perhaps one that he hasn't, to our knowledge anyway, is formal education as a social form or cultural practice. Um, he might, he's not going to pull out a paper he's written and tell us all about it. Um, this is perhaps not surprising. Historically, British social anthropology, even in its Manchester School incarnation, rarely focused on formal education, perhaps seeing it as too close to a state-sponsored institutional modernity. Perhaps David's interest in education is an embodied one, best exemplified as Richard and I have experienced in his own inspirational teaching and mentoring. So whilst we could point to passing references to investment in education in the um, Lineal Destiny um, book, the revisiting in our title is less a return to David's work than to our own, using this opportunity to think through our fieldwork materials in a new light. David, you wrote um, in 2000 about how um, the evocation of fieldwork experiences which we were in, in, uh, about which we were insufficiently sure to take further. Um, so honouring this spirit, um, we're bringing together some, some of those experiences. We haven't been sure about how to take this further, further forward. We've been working as a, in a charity, as, as Lena mentioned. We both were interested in, this, in these questions around the intensity, the intensity of this symbolic, emotional and material investment in schooling and its emancipatory promises. So our connection here then to David is perhaps with his early interest in the relationship between economic and social change and how we might use that to make anthropological sense of the symbolism and materiality of school fees. So, to start with, we, we return to David's early work and looked at how um, he looks at the relationship between the cultural and economic sphere in his first book, Neighbours and Nationals in an African City Ward, based on Luo-speaking Kenyan migrants in Kampala in the heady aftermath of Uganda independence. Amid spheres of nationalist discrimination, David argues they have little alternative to accept their expatriate status, but what they do to try and protect themselves in that situation is um, to uh, use ideology and ceremonies, he puts it. And following the classic Manchester School um, tradition of illustration through extended cases, he describes political meetings, soccer networks, um, soccer programmes rather, and networks that protect Luo financial interests from political interference. Already here, there's an interest in the ideology of kinship, an interest in language and communication, and the importance of cultural process as much as structural role. This interest in the relationship between economic development and social change continues in publications from two bouts of fieldwork amongst the Giriyama. In Palm, Wines and Witnesses focuses in what he calls a study of economic change on the relationship between redistributionist and capitalist modes of economic opportunities and the, bigger, the growing wealth disparities between farmers as young entrepreneurs buy up their relatives' land and palm orchards. And this is unwittingly facilitated by Giriyama elders in their role as the arbiters of customary law. Here too, Economic development as a concept is a subjective experience, as he puts it, however many indices may be imposed from the outside. 1972, the collected volume Town and Country, David's again seeking to um, nuance overly deterministic models of um, migration, here noting that so-called economic reasons, e.g. bride wealth, 
or as much cultural phenomenon as a wish to leave for fear of being bewitched. Surrounded by scholars of possibly more positivist tenor, he calls for an intention to the interplay between cultural and political economic factors. And his interest in breaking down dichotomies is taken to a new level in semantic anthropology, the edited volume for the 1982 conference. Taking a lead from Malcolm Crick's work, Language and Meaning, and drawing on his own undergraduate training in linguistics, the conference seems to me to mark the arrival of French philosophical influences in the British field. With attention to issues of ideology, power, belief and interpretation, it becomes a manifesto for Sowers' anthropology. Parkin is prescient in anticipating the importance of what he later becomes known as actor network theory, as he puts it, the reversible process by which people and things become objectified, yet may themselves at another point in time become active agents. So, in this piece we want to similarly explore the agency of school fees, the way they become entangled in different spheres of value and exchange. At a personal level, there's a symbolic value accorded formal education, and the economic and status opportunities future credentials might provide. This symbolic value drives the decision to invest in school fees despite the often unrealistic expectations for on education, and sustained by a range of exchange networks, from small kin-based savings groups to more formalised rotating credit schemes. Okay, so the next section is called Education, Education, Education. Uganda's first school could be argued to have been established at the end of the 1870s, as rival groups of missionaries attempted to strengthen their position in the Kabaka's court by taking Bible reading classes with the courtiers. Soon enough, the Abasomi, those who read, became a powerful political group in their own right, and alphabetinarianism became the court fashion. These groups of missionaries trained Ganda catechists as proselytizers for their faiths, and their training centers became the elite schools for each religious domination. But there was a constant shortage of teachers, and given the necessity of maintaining colonial hegemony on a shoestring, the British authorities were happy to provide the missions with grants to do the government's work. So the Protestant CMS founded King's College Budo in 1906, as a school for the children of chiefs. And the pupils described it as a kilagalagla, the, the label describing the group of pages within the Kabaka's enclosure. Catholics followed soon after with St. Mary's, Rubaga, Kisubi, and St. Joseph's, Nalunyango. The model was that of an English public school, and the vision of creating a national bourgeoisie of future civil servants was deeply appealing to the chiefly elite. There was some technical instruction, but mostly a focus on literary education. And as Cheney notes, whatever it meant to the British, to African schooling meant becoming cosmopolitan, academically educated and employable in a colonial regime. This orientation to educational attainment became the foundation of modern class formation in Uganda. So these schools established the educational hierarchy that in contemporary Uganda has become ever more central to one's social aspiration and cultural capital. During the 1920s, reformist calls for a more vocational-focused education was largely rejected, and agriculture, which was introduced by, um, by some of these reformers, became a means of punishing children who had been naughty. So the agricultural classes were simply given to, the, um, given to children to, 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 you know, as, as a, dis, as a dis, detention discipline. The foundation of Makera in 1922 was similarly treated with the same. It was initially a technical college. Education continued to be very unevenly distributed. By 1950, 47 of 53 secondary schools were operated by missions. All except one were in Buganda or in the eastern part of Uganda. After independence, the huge demand for education led many communities to build their own schools and government nationalisation slowly challenged the mission hegemony. After the destruction of the Oboti and Armenias, Museveni made education one of his key priorities. Swallowing the pill of neoliberal policy reforms that accompanied donor investment and guidance, he tried to rehabilitate the sector. But under the rhetoric of cost-sharing, many schools became increasingly reliant on parent-teacher contributions to supplement paltry and unreliable salaries. Now, Museveni has been very tactically clever. Um, in 1996, his re-election campaign was based on universal primary education, 
and this has since become um, a sort of global millennium development goal, providing free education for up to four children in each family. Enrolment rocketed from 2.9 million to 5.5 million in two months. Um, so it's, you know, it's incredible, the numbers. It forced the government to massively increase its education spending, which is now the largest part of the national budget, and since then, the um, enrolment has continued to grow exponentially. It's now almost 9 million. 2006 elections, we've did the same thing, promising universal secondary education, an almost impossibly expensive policy target. And that's already been rolled out in a slow way. So what, what, goes, what happens there here is then you have 200, 200 ch children in the classroom. Um, uh, it's an impossible sort of burden on the teachers. And the liberalisation has other, other quite daunting consequences. Competition between schools over ratings, the migration of teachers from under-resourced rural schools to private schools around Kampala, and the best students being headhunted and offered scholarships. With the pressure on results, great inflation has led more students seeming to do well, making it harder to pull children out of school. This has all been driven much, much more so by the liberalisation of the sector, allowing um, a huge number of private schools to be created at every level of income, subverting the state's control of the sector, um, and, and often upsetting the traditional hierarchy, which was where, with, with this mission school that I described at the, at the top. And um, it's also a big um, destination for international students from Kenyans and Rwandans come to um, Uganda for secondary schooling. People can precisely rank precisely rank, and the league tables in the papers help as well, the schools' reputations and prestige, um, best schools, um, private schools, um, government schools, and then they're called the lowest schools, third world schools they used to be called in, in, um, in the parts of Uganda where I was. Even the Ugandan government admits that teaching is geared towards the object achievement of good marks at the cost of other objectives. Despite these reforms, education is judged by many parents simply in terms of the numbers of, of academic qualifications. So why do people invest so much in education? One family I know sent their primary-age children to a, a private boarding school 200 yards from their house. These are primary-age children, seven or eight-year-olds, in order to maximise their chances of getting into the best secondary schools. Meanwhile, the start of every term is marked by a collective national effervescence, the search for, the scramble for school fees. Banks are thronged with queues, and the chatting bars is of little else. People even moaned, moaned to Richard that Christmas had been cancelled in his part of um, Uganda because it, it coincided with the start of the school fee season. <laughs> And there's obviously a strong symbolic aspect to this. As Cheney notes, sometimes schooling and sorry, achieving and maintaining a schooled identity can be more important than actually learning. So the, the next section is called Savings Clubs and the Credit Society. So here we want to talk a little bit, and Shelley, I know you've written a lot about um, um, rotating credit schemes and your work on money grounds, but we're going to talk a little bit about um, the, the rise of, of, um, of savings groups in, in Uganda to fund school fees. There's obviously a complex Ugandan history to this, um, coming out of collective work groups, burial societies and elite social networks. Um, collective work parties became much more important in the Amin and Abota years, where the breakdown of state institutions became more, meant that bartering was an important way of retaining goods. And the AIDS epidemic obviously led to burial societies, men in Buganda as Munumukabi, a friend in need, um, a way of sharing food and material goods. And gradually these took on a more monetarized um, form, functioning as rotating credit schemes, allowing people to buy cheap manufactured goods. Often started by women, um, they started and soon became ubiquitous around Uganda. As one respondent put it, there is no household in Uganda who isn't in one of these. Um, and men are, men are involved in them as well, often to buy building materials. Um, the next part draws particularly on Richard's, Richard's fieldwork. He describes how in the west of Uganda, the 1980s, saw the rise of exchange societies bringing together elite males, known in Rinankoli as Echigombe, Ebigombe in plural. These involve sharing meals um, and often sizable financial investments. There are a variety of other terms used to describe these terms, or even in English, as a revolving cash round. And they vary in their formality, their size and their wealth flow, 
but the savings phenomenon crosses all classes. They've also been promoted heavily by the international and local development NGOs that increasingly define Ugandan civil society. In 2003, the state attempted to formalise and professionalise these groups through a microfinance act. Anyone, any group with more than 10 people had to um, register and hold a bank account. And with a growing pressure to access funds for school fees, these groups have proliferated and people may be involved in more than one. Now, how do they work? Well, this again, this has been quite well documented, but I'll quickly summarise it. They're a mutual savings society working on a wagon wheel basis. Everyone pays in a fixed amount each month and takes their turn to receive the pot. Who gets paid out can vary by, you know, strictly on rotation or on needs basis or a lottery system. Some may pay out to more than one person, usually monthly, sometimes fortnightly. Um, how do they recruit new members? Well, in principle, any existing member can introduce a new colleague with a caveat that the member has to vouch that they can be trusted and hear um, the notion of um, okusiga in Luganda and Nyankoli, that the trust is something we were going to try and go and explore. In practice, membership is largely determined by one's wealth and the ability to keep up one regular's payments. These can vary from anything between £1.50 to up to a million shillings, which could be £400 a month for elite um, Kampala executives. So what does this mean for obligation and social trust? How do these groups help manage the intense pressure of school fees? Well, you can take the pot before um, the school year starts to meet your obligations. But given the cycle of payments, not everyone can do that. There's also the danger that someone will take the pot and then be unable to meet their subsequent obligations. As a result of this, people join groups or move frequently between groups. But why would one group agree to take someone on when they have defaulted another group? simple answer is they may have to, especially where the applicant can draw on a pre-existing relationship. So these pre-existing bonds can in fact pull a group down. So trust here makes things more risky. Sometimes moving from one group to another can be a coherent instrumental strategy. So we know someone called, um, who is a prominent local politician, Dunstan, who funded an ambitious new hotel venture by skillfully playing off one group against another in order to raise millions of shillings. But it's more likely that these multiple engagements are a sign of incoherence um, and may undermine a person's standing. One of our respondents joked that several Ebigombi were in, in the village of Bugambu were out to kill him because of various debts he'd run up. He eventually ran away from the village. So here's, a, here's an example um, to give you a sense of, of how these things work. In late 2008, Kaungo joined an Echigombe with 25 members, who each paid in um, 5,000 shillings, which is about um, £1.50, making a pot of about £40. Now, Karango works as a casual labourer um, of only two days a week, and he earns about 60p a day, with no other source of income or wealth. So when he took the pot of £40 to pay fees for a son who was about to start the local secondary school, the first of his sons to get beyond primary school, and therefore you know, a very significant moment in his life, um, he, he was really out of his depth. He struggled to even get one chicken for the dinner at, the, at, the house, at his house on the night we took the pot. And one, one chicken doesn't go far amongst 25 people. He was later teased for belonging to an Echigombi that can't even afford to eat chicken at its meetings. Two rounds further on, Kaungu can't keep up with his fortnightly repayments. He's got 20 rounds to go. He drops out completely. But great pressure is brought on him to, um, to pay. And so following this, he, he forces himself into a second Echigombi group on the basis that his brother, Balamu, is a member. And Balamu is not at all happy about this, for he's a man of means, having built up his wealth through goat rearing, and at one point he had 40 goats. The second Echigombe he's joined is made of people of similar means, and none of whom were happy to have Kaungo enter. Balamu was faced with reconciling his ties to Kaungo with his commitment to the group. However, Kaungo relied on his bonds and, um, and insisted on entering. Again he took the pot, this time to pay off his debts from the first Echigombe. 
Again, he defaults on subsequent payments. This time, he's in serious trouble. At this stage, he turns to Dunstan, as I said, an influential businessman and local leader, to try and bail him out. Because even though he's one of the poorest men in the village, Kaunga has a friendship bond with Dunstan's household over many decades, having stemmed from being um, Dunstan's mother's most trusted herd boy when they were youngsters. But Dunstan manages to um, politely refuse. At this point, Kaunga waits for another Emberara big man with whom he's got social connections to visit the village. When he does so, Kaunga borrows one of his brother Balamu's goats and gives this to the big man as a gift. Following which, the big man feels obliged to give Kaunga some money towards paying off the debt on the second Ekajagumbi. This goes some way towards paying it off, but he's still left with substantial debt. Kaunga's gift to the big man is, is extraordinary. For a guy of his means to give a goat worth 80,000 shillings, which is you know, 30 pounds, shows how much faith he has in his connections with the big man. So there's really interesting, complicated sort of networks of, of sort of loyalty and belonging and, 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 and um, um, isolation going on. In addition to taking the pot in this way, people also take out loans from their pigombi to pay school fees. Most groups no longer give out all their holdings each meeting, but sometimes only 75 to 80%, leaving the rest as loans for members, on which they charge between 3 and 10%. Most people think nothing of borrowing some of this money or paying interest on it because as members of the group, they see it as their money anyway. And the interest they're paying is sort of somehow their own wealth as well, paying their own wealth. Again, this gives people an excuse to overextend themselves. On the other hand, people described how they valued these new rules about paying interest on loans because the government brought in these rules about, um, about you know, who and how could claim um, interest or who and when could make, make access to money from these epigombi. And they were said... Um, that these loans were protected from their kin-based expectations because of these rules. In other words, whilst Dunstan might legitimately ask to borrow his, brother's, his sister's Catalina's money, if it's her own money, which would be more or less obliged to lend, he can't ask for a loan from her Echigombi, precisely because she'd be a charge interest on it. And loans of this sort are notionally illegal, even if outside the purview of the authorities. Thus, in the event that, in the event that someone defaults on a loan, the Echigombi can't appeal to anyone, not even the, the local LC1 chairman to claim it back. So in these ways, the Echigombe loans create a sphere of reciprocity of their own, disembedded from some of the pre-existing exchange obligations and also outside the jurisdiction of the formal economy. So what does all this tell us about um, conceptions of trust and, and risk? Well, recent African scholarship has challenged the Eurocentrism that lies behind the theorisation of trust in relation to individualised perceptions of risk. So rather than seeing you know, trust and risk as, as, as directly um, opposites, and questioning notions of generalised trust, scholars have shown that trust is best understood as emerging from everyday material practices. Writing about trust within Malawi and Pentecostal communities, England argues that trust hinges on relationships rather than on following abstract procedures. In his account of Congolese traders, Rubens argues trust involves the negotiation of practical norms in the course of different types of relationships. He describes how his informants are troubled by the ambiguous rules surrounding reciprocity with distant relatives, finding it easier to trust non-relatives than more distant kin. In the same vein, we'd argue that in Uganda, people's use of the term okusiga, trust, helps us understand the meaning and values of these ebigombe. Obwesigwa, trust, for many Ugandans, is built on day-to-day -day interactions, the continuity of relationships, whether based on kinship or kin-like ties. People talk of trust as being integral, necessary, a core part of the ebigombe. People in exchange networks based on trust are therefore more likely to give their members a greater degree of leeway so that's the point, that there might be more trust, but it might be less reliable. So if you're given more leeway in meeting your obligation, even when in the case of Balamu's Echigombe, this might not be necessarily what they want to do. While you might have trust in the network, this doesn't mean you can rely on it. 
So if kin-based and locality-based reciprocity can lead to defaulting, other sorts of more formal mutual, med- mutual credit societies have also emerged. Church-based, football clubs, political parties, co-workers. They're bigger. They're sometimes more than 100 members, but with strictly enforced regulations. For an individual, despite the lack of trust between members here, because they don't know each other, joining such a group may produce greater rewards, be more reliable, and there be less risk of others defaulting. In conclusion, our interest in these new social forms as a response to education as a total social phenomenon returns us to David's early interest in the interplay of the cultural and political economic. The search for school fees and the huge demands they play on Ugandan households is, we would argue, a key factor in the popularity of these savings associations. They show us that trust in what is thought of as communities is not necessarily taken for granted. Social norms, personal ties, kin networks become more fluid, more negotiable. The new discourse surrounding education has led to the generation of new types of trust, increasing the number of relations of trust one could be involved in, but perhaps reducing the content of that trust. Savings associations become powerful social actors, allowing people to use the discourse of school fees to distance themselves from kin-based obligations and rely on more impersonal and institutionalised reciprocity. Education retains its symbolic value, its material power. It promises much, but reproduces an increasingly wealth-stratified society. <laughs>